Thank you. Do uh, have a seat. And you might like to um, have before you uh, that reading from page 1,225. So how can we... How can we be sure that we know God? Well, I suppose before we actually get to our passage and find out part of the answer, we need to ask ourselves whether God lets us know that he's there or whether we have to try and find him. I mean, the first approach relies upon revelation. God has to show his hand. The second approach relies on what's called rationalism. Now, it's true that we've been given a rational mind. We can think, and our rationality, what we do with that mind, is in fact to be prized. And Basingstoke, in particular, has come a long way since John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, came to Basingstoke 250 years ago, when, to quote him, he found the inhabitants particularly thick of head and like the wild beasts of Ephesus. So we have a lot to be uh, thankful for. But our, our heads contain a rational mind and we do not have to behave like brute beasts, which is how the old prayer book starts off the preface to the marriage service. We don't have to behave like wild animals. That said, we must recognise our limitations and two immediately come to mind. The first is that we're finite. We don't even know the extent of the universe, for example, let alone understand what happens within it. And the other limitation is that we're fallen. We have a propensity to be lazy and not to think, to be morally dubious so that we're liable to twist the evidence to suit our predilections. We have an inbuilt bias, and it's not towards God and his ways, it's actually away from God and to our ways. So rationalism the worldview that reckons that little old us, starting with ourselves, can work out what it's all about, is both over-optimistic and flawed, given our intellectual and moral limitations. So we have to go for revelation. God, the one in the know, has to reveal himself to us so that we can know. That's what we saw when we started this little letter of John's. This is how he started off. 1 John, chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim or declare concerning the word of life. He's talking about when he and the other apostles um, first encountered Jesus when Jesus went public. He'd been living for 30 years, but then he went public and he was revealing God to us in a form that we could understand, in a human form. And 
John and others were chosen to be those special first-hand witnesses, to be with him for those three years, to hear and see all that he did. And their primary task was to record it so that we who live later could, through their writings, encounter the same Christ that John encountered firsthand. God revealed himself as a human being. And the apostles like John, he says, heard, saw, and touched, and then passed on that information, both orally, first of all, by speaking, and then verbally by writing it all down so that others like us, living centuries later, can know. So we can't discover God, though we are uh, wired up to seek him, We know in our guts that creation requires a creator. Our consciences, we know, need stilling because at death we fear we might encounter him for the first time and we're going to be on the wrong side when we do meet him. And mercifully, God has not remained remote. Instead, he has revealed himself to us in a way that we could best understand in a form and in our world. And so it has to be revelation and not rationalism if we are to know God. And that's why John wrote his first, his gospel. And he did that to provide evidence for us that we might have enough evidence to believe in this God and entrust ourselves to him and in through that relationship experience him. him. He wrote at the very end of his gospel, 2031, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have eternal life in his name. You see, these people who were around towards the other end of the century in which John lived, who were called Gnostics, the knowledgeable ones, those in the know, who were rather condescending towards those who weren't in the know, the agnostics, the ones who don't know, the no-knowledge people, literally the ignorant. And the Gnostics reckoned that they had secret knowledge, which they kind of worked out. And from what we know of it, it was incoherent, it was irrational, it was unverifiable. But that didn't stop people swallowing it. The Gnostics were very persuasive. When they were... They were the kind of people that if you're not very discerning and you go for image over substance, you go along with. We all love, don't we, to be kind of in the in-group, especially those who know something that everybody else doesn't know. And these people were drawn into that kind of elite. We all love something that is rather calming and restful. They lived busy lives then, as we do today. Nothing like kind of sitting and uh, perhaps being quiet and a nice bit of mood music. And of course, if you're into it all, you know, candles and all that stuff, really. People like that. They kind of swallow it. It does them in some ways good, and they make what they think they feel having divine kind of um, connections. But of course, that stuff didn't make any demands upon them. Gnosticism was a fairly amoral, if not immoral, way of living. What you did in the body didn't matter to kind of what you kind of felt when you shut your eyes and floated upwards. 
And what they tended to do is they tended to use the same vocabulary of whatever religion or whatever culture they wished to kind of infiltrate and gather adherence. But what they meant by the same vocabulary wasn't the same thing. And by, t by the time the suckers had, been, had begun to realize that, they'd been well and truly sucked in through the familiarity of the language. And this meant that many Christians who'd been influenced by the Gnostics were thoroughly confused because what these Gnostics taught was at variance with what the apostles, like John, were teaching about knowing God and what God was like. So John sets out in this letter to reassure them that they have truly embraced Christ when they heard about him from the apostle. And so at the end of this letter, in chapter 5.13, he writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So this letter is not characterized so much by evidence to produce faith, but by giving tests designed to accredit the fact that you have got a genuine faith, that you do in fact know God. And John goes on to spell out what these tests are. Now we're all familiar, aren't we, with assessments. I mean, most of us have spent our life being assessed. Well, most of you who are under 30 have. I mean, I think I can, thinking back, I think I was examined at seven, and I think I stopped being examined at 27, and I had one year when I didn't have to do any exams. I'm sure that's true of many of you. And if you go on to work, if you're a teacher, you get assessed by the dreaded Ofsted. If you work in healthcare, you get assessed by, I presume it's similarly dreaded, the, the CQC, the Care Quality Commission. They're all designed to check check out if you are what you claim to be. But these assessments are not necessarily going to result in negative stuff. They might do, of course. They might reveal that we're not showing evidence of a genuine Christian profession of faith. But the outcome of the assessment might actually be positive. We realise that we do display a consistent Christian life. And that is reassuring that we are a genuine believer, that we do know God and all that goes with it. So John offers three tests to check out if we're genuine. These are what they are. The first is the moral test. Are we obedient to God's word and his commandments? Verses three to six. The second is also about behavior, but it's a social test. Do we love fellow Christians, 7 to 11? And the third is a teaching test or a doctrine test. Do we fashion our thinking in line with the teaching of Christ? And in particular, uh, the commandments and also, of course, scripture in general, 18 to 27. Well, we're not going to have time this week, I've realized rather belatedly. And so we can't tackle the third test, but John's the kind of writer who I confess doesn't think like I think, at least his processes aren't. 
he actually will repeat these three tests from a different angle two more times in his letter. So we'll be able to look at the, at the teaching test on a later occasion. So with today we just confine ourselves to the moral test, obedience, and the social test, love. So the moral test first, three to six. Verse three, we know, in other words, we can be sure that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. And verse five, this is how we know we are in him. Or the New English Bible written, kind of in, uh, translated in 1961 says, here's the test by which you can make sure you know him. Now John's insisting that no religious experience is valid if it does not have moral consequences. We saw that last week. If a professing Christian's life is to be a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, as the Apostle Paul says uh, elsewhere, then it's uh, not presumptuous of such a Christian to be able to say that they know God. In fact, it's the professing believers whose claim to know God is contradicted by their conduct, who are, of course, being presumptuous. So the general principle which John is establishing is this. Only if we obey him can we claim to know him. Only if we obey him can we claim to know him. And then he spells out an example. First negatively, verse 4, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Our conduct can contradict our claim. Our profession can be demonstrated to be false. And then next he, claims, he, um, he gives a positive example, verse 5. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. God's love has not only been received, but has transformed the true believer so that he's nearer what God intended him to be. Verse 6, the claim to live or abide or reside in him, that's Christ, the claimant must walk as Jesus did, if that's going to have any credibility. We cannot claim to abide in Christ unless we behave like him, John argues. It's an obligation which, when exercised, gives us credibility to our claim to be a Christian and to say that we know God. So what would the world make of you? Let's just take a, a simple example. How's your parking? Now there's no need to worry because I never use people who are current members of church as an example. But I was once at a clergy meeting. It'd been difficult to park and I had to walk a little way to the venue. We had a bishop with us. Halfway through the meeting, a rather cross-looking woman came in. The owner of car such-and-such, such, registration such-and-such, such, is blocking my drive, and I want to get out. Can they move it, please? Who left the meeting? Yep, the one in the maroon shirt, the bishop. Now, I wonder what that lady thought. Was that an example of a credible Christian? 
Well, I'll leave you to think. The second test is love or the social test, 7 to 11. Dear friends, that's a bit kind of weak, really. It's often translated in older versions as beloved because it uses that word that um, Jesus stuffed full of meaning, um, agape, for love. And he writes to urge them to love each other. And he assures them as he starts that he does love them. He's been writing about the Christian's obligation to keep God's commandments in verses 3 and 4, and he now singles out one of those commandments. He's not explicit about which commandment it is, but given that the subject of verses 9 to 11 is love, given that the new commandment which Jesus gave was love one another as I have loved you, John 13, 34, and in 1 John 2, 6, John's told them that they must walk as Jesus walked. Now, was this command old or new? Well, in one sense, it was not new. They are said to have known about it from the start of their Christian life. 1 John 2, 24, See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. 1 John 3, 11, This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. And 2 John 6, as you have heard him from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. So it was part of the instruction they received from the time that they first heard about Christ or even met him. Some of these people might possibly have actually met him and then moved out to Western Turkey like John had to do. And yet, verse 8, it was also it was a new command. What was old to them, because they heard it before, was in fact new because it was seen in him. They obviously, love was not new, but the way Jesus lived out his life brought the word to a new, fuller definition. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. It's his example that stuffs that word with deeper, richer, broader meaning. In his walk, in his life, he gave a much deeper meaning. Let me explain. He brings together, first of all, things they already knew about love. Deuteronomy 6, 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. He brought that together with Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbor as yourself. And he declares that these two verses sum up all the law and the prophets. That's basically most of the Old Testament. And secondly, he gives love a new quality. A disciple of Christ was not just to love others as he loved himself, but to love others in the same measure as Christ loved him, with a selfless, self-sacrificial love, a love for the unlovely, even to the point of being prepared to die for those who were so rebellious, who were so unlovely, and who didn't look like they could care less 
whether Jesus lived or died. That's a whole new, extremely challenging dimension to love. And then thirdly, he, he broadens it, the extent of it. He gives new expression to love. Think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Our neighbor, how's that defined? Well, it meant we must love anyone who needs our compassion and help, even if they are neither one of us nor like us. That's a tall order. And then fourthly, this command will continue to be new as they get a fresh apprehension of it, as they uh, experience putting the command into practice. It's a new command for a new age, which had dawned. Because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Now, these these, uh, people who had a Jewish background, they would know that history was divided into two ages, the present age and the age to come. But Jesus taught that the age to come had come when he came. So think of two circles like this. Sorry, I was a bit short of time for kind of really first-rate visual aids. You'll just have to kind of... Imagine my fingers. So just think of these two circles, one representing the present age and one the age to come. And what he's saying is that the age to come has come in him. And so that we live now in that kind of overlap. The present age has been invaded by the age to come. So that for the last 2,000 years, we've lived in that overlap and we have begun to taste the powers of the age to come. The darkness of the present age is said to be, by John, passing away as the true light, which is Jesus, came into the world. Jesus is the true light, not in the sense of true as against false, but in the sense of real as against unreal. Jesus is the true light of which physical light is an expression. Just as Jesus is the true bread, the true vine, he's the true light. The reality is in heaven. The shadow or the copy is here on earth. So we have a new commandment for a new age ushered in by the shining of the true light. Verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Jesus, the true light, is the light of love. So to be or to abide or to walk in the light light is to walk in love. Light and love are contrasted with darkness and hatred. Now these Gnostics, these Noels, claim to have been enlightened to possess knowledge of God. But it was a futile claim that they had because to be in the light required you to live a life of moral obedience. It required you to live a life in which you loved. But these guys were not morally obedient and they even hated and despised people. 
The true Christian, though, is the one who knows God and walks in the light and both obeys God and loves his brother. And then 10 and 11. Whereas earlier he had given a general principle and then an example, now having given an example, he provides the principle behind it. It is expressed positively and negatively like he does. The contrast is both absolute and it's stark. It's between love and hatred with no alternative. His readers are either in the light or in the dark. There's no twilight. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, he says, verse 10. Whoever hates his brother is in darkness, verse 11. See, our love and hatred not only reveal whether we are already in the light or the darkness, but actually contribute towards the light or the darkness in which we already are. So the man of love who lives in the light may be said to have nothing in him to make him stumble. Whereas the man of hatred, because he's in darkness, also walks in darkness. He said, verse 11, that he does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. Isn't that so true? Think of the conflict areas around the world. Hatred distorts our perspective. We do not first misjudge people and then hate them as a result. Now, our view of them is already jaundiced by our hatred. It is love which sees straight, thinks clearly, and makes us balanced in our outlooks, our judgments, and our conduct. So as I said at the beginning, I think we'll stop there. The third test, the, the correct belief test, we'll leave pending. As I said, fortunately, John will go through these tests at least two other times in his letter, and we can return and incorporate 18 to 27 in them on another occasion. But how are we faring with just the two tests that we've looked at this evening? If you apply the test to yourself, what do you find? Try and, try and hover above yourself. Try and kind of, this isn't some kind of spooky religious sect idea. It's, um, it's Shell use this for their top executive. It's the thing which distinguishes the guys at the top from the rest. If, you're, if you have a helicopter view, if you're able to kind of, as it were, hover above yourself and try and look at yourself as somebody else might look at you. How are you faring? Is your life constantly at variance with how Jesus behaved? You walk, your walk, your habitual behavior. Is it more in the dark than in the light? Do you find yourself hating people or thinking pretty nastily about them more than you think positively and lovingly about them. If it is, then you're in trouble. You need to have a really good look at the life of Jesus and his analysis of human nature and where you stand with him. But you could have a more positive 
I mean, it's impossible to be totally objective about ourselves, but you could come out with a more positive result. Now, you will certainly commit one-off sins from time to time. But ask yourself this question. Would people be surprised to know you're a Christian? Your moral behavior and your disposition towards people. When people evaluate that, would they think that your life is like your master's? Is it how they think Jesus would behave? In other words, you are in both attitude and actions a credible Christian if they think that you are like Jesus. And they're not surprised to discover, even if you've never said a word about the Christian faith. Again, I was at a meeting and uh, the person addressing it, who was um, a chief executive of a council, I thought, I know he was talking about <laughs> town planning, I just thought that his whole demeanour demonstrated that he was a Christian. He didn't say anything. It wasn't his, part of his job to say so. But I was told afterwards that he was. It didn't surprise me that he was. So, you may evaluate yourself, and you may, if you can answer positively to that question, would somebody you work with who doesn't know think that you were a Christian? If that's the case, then maybe your Christianity is very credible. And not only is that a good witness, but it also gives you an assurance that you do know God. Because it's only God in you that can display a life that is like the life of Jesus. So if you're a genuine Christian, you do know him. These are the things which John has kind of mentioned in just these few verses. You do know him. You know the truth, which is another way of saying the same thing. You obey the truth. You walk as Jesus walked. You follow his commands. You're walking in the light. You are part of the new age. You know where you're going. You have assurance. You look forward to what we say in the funeral service, to the sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life. Now let's pray. Well, let's have a moment of uh, quiet, a moment of silence, and just think about these two tests, the moral test and the social test. Are we obedient to Christ? And the other one is, do we have that attitude and disposition to love people who are particularly unlovable? because we look at them through the eyes of Christ and we remember how we were once aliens and rebels and yet he still loved us because he wanted to win us back. So do we display that kind of love? And would somebody guess by our moral behavior that uh, we owe allegiance, the moral arbiter of the universe?
Amen.